0: Hello, and welcome to Spy Hards Podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott.
1: And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Cam, I think we have our third angel joining us this week. We do indeed. (laughs) It's all about a family. Welcome
0: to the family. Well, yeah, and joining us this week is, of course, Helen O'Hara from Empire Magazine, the Empire Film Podcast, basically everywhere. She's the best, <laughs> Helen. Welcome aboard.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah, glad to be here. Can't, I'm very excited to be an angel. I thought my moment had passed when Victoria's Angels, for some reason, didn't pick me for the fashion show, but I've got an, a second chance.
0: <laughs> it had to be on this film, didn't it, as well, to be fair? Yeah, of of lucky,
2: lucky me. Yeah. <laughs>
0: It's trial by fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that seems to be the case with a lot of guests. Mm. Um, but before we talk about this week's film, Helen, for those who don't know much about you, uh, you know what is it you do in your day job?
2: Well, yes, I am editor-at-large for Empire Magazine, which is the world's biggest film magazine, I think, technically, but it's, it's certainly the UK's biggest. And um, I, being editor-at-large means I've kind of got one foot in the door and one foot out, so I'm able to be there and... Uh, co-host the podcast that we do every week and do our spoiler podcast things like that and then also just write for anyone who will let me uh, about film and tv and anything really um i just did a book recently as well it's called women versus hollywood and it's a sort of history of women in film um and uh that's out now in the uk and out very soon i think in november in the us so uh so yeah it's been a busy year weirdly in lockdown despite everything um so yeah i've been trying to keep out of trouble
1: it's very surreal hearing you, Helen, because I've been listening to the Empire podcast for many years, so this is a real treat.
2: <laughs> oh, thank you. Yes, it's been, uh, yeah, we've been going since uh, 2012, and, uh, and we just keep producing the same, you know, giggling idiocy, um, I think one of our readers <laughs> called it, uh, every week. It's been, it's been great fun, especially in lockdown. It's been really, you know, sometimes, you know, the only human contact that a lot of us have when we're working from home. So it's been a real mm-hmm. lifeline for us, I think, and hopefully for listeners as well, but mostly for us.
0: How have you uh have you guys adjusted to the recording from home? Because you I I guess you all used to do it in the studio at the Empire HQ. Yeah.
2: yeah, we did, yeah. Um it's been I mean, you know, like everybody else, it's been it's been kind of doing it over uh we use Squadcast, um, so it's at least we get to see each other and, you know, some kind of weird interaction. But it's uh weird. And uh but at the same time it's at least we've been able to do it. And, you know, I'm very grateful for that. I mean, we've been able to get you know mics and uh setups at home and we've got screen errors online and on our tvs instead of in cinemas which is not the same not as good i'm saying it right Mm -hmm. now but at least you know we're able to keep doing what we do and keep watching films which is again just a lifeline i feel like uh, you know film may seem very very unimportant given the the many huge challenges and problems in the world right now but i do think that film is an escape i think it's uh uh, a way to process our emotions and and escape our own heads for a couple of hours at a time and i really do think it saves lives i think it's really important especially in difficult times like this to have somewhere that you can go that isn't your own head you know so so yeah it's been it's been great to have that outlet and have that lifeline kind of going on
1: well said it's, it's definitely
0: been a savior for uh well no yeah i i agree it's definitely been a savior for for me and cam a little bit this is a uh pandemic podcast as it's been termed although we intend to keep going afterwards but uh right. it, yeah. it's been nice to you know sit down for a few hours where we can talk about you know some random films like condor man <laughs> 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 Yeah no. um so it, it's just been a delight i completely understand and i do have a question for you about mm. uh cinema actually sure now that they're they're open again in the uk i mean this this is coming out a few weeks after that but this week i think or last week the cinemas opened in the uk yeah they did yeah have you ventured back yet?
2: Oh, yes, I have. Yes, several times. Mm. Um, so my first one back officially was Singing in the Rain um, mm. because I figured yes. if you're going to go, go big. You know, yeah. um, that was wonderful. That was on the Prince Charles Cinema here in London. If you are mm-hmm. in London, I highly, highly recommend it. They do amazing screenings of a huge amount of older films. And um Yeah, and then I've been back a couple of times for screenings uh, and so on as well. I've got some tickets booked for this weekend at my local cinema to get back there. So I am 100% back in the swing of it. I have missed it so, so much. And, you know, they they are being very careful. They have, you know, the seats are all terribly distanced and you you keep your masks on for unless you're actually eating or drinking during the during the film. But um, but even then, even so, even with those limitations, it is just a tonic to be back in the cinema.
0: I have my first uh, my first ticket for this Friday for a, an advanced screening of Quiet Place Part 2. Oh, that, cool. That should be fun. Uh, or or not fun, as the case may be with that film. <laughs> Very scary, potentially. But uh, yeah, the Prince Charles um, cinema is great, actually. I'm going mm. down there to see Goldeneye, actually, oh, at, at the end of July. So that should be fun um and as for your your book i actually just picked up a copy today of oh, uh, women versus hollywood that's coming through in the post in the next couple of days so i'll i'll ship that over to you to get it signed at some point absolutely and, uh, yeah to, to
1: agent scott of course <laughs> now what inspired you to write this book
2: Well, yeah, these are kind of um, issues I've been talking about and writing about for a while. You know, uh, if you're a a regular Empire podcast listener, you've probably heard me talking about some of the stuff about women in film and, you know, Mm -hmm. some of the horrific statistics about, you know, the the lack of female directors and the lack of female leads. Um, But this was an attempt to kind of decode it for myself, really, uh, as much as for readers. So it was an attempt to kind of go through and look at Hollywood history and, and look at how this came about, why we tend to assume that you know um women aren't directors and that, you know that's that's sort of a, a male job by default and and how that kind of became almost you know solidified in in kind of hollywood history because there were women there at the dawn of the silent era and they did make films and they were directors and producers and studio heads and all the rest of it and then it just disappears for about you know 60 70 years it's still not quite back yet so so yeah, I was just trying to look at some of the different forces that have kind of created this situation where over 80% of directors are male, um, over 80% of, female, of film leads are male as well, you know, so just like most films are about men and men's stuff. Most Oscar winners are about men. Um, there's much more overlap between best picture and best actor than there is between best picture and best actress, because mm. women films about women don't tend to win best picture. They don't, they're they not seen as being as important. So there is this imbalance at the heart of Hollywood. And it, it obviously, you know, reflects and reinforces, and we can have a discussion about, you know, chickens and eggs, but it, it reflects the world that we live in. But I mean, it's it's my belief that Hollywood has the potential to, to kind of shape the way we see the world and shape the way we see ourselves at least to some degree and that it's worth having these discussions about Hollywood and trying to change that picture because it can change the world in a little way so so yeah that was kind of what I was trying to do so I was, I was trying to look you know back through Hollywood history and then look at some of the forces acting today you know in terms of critics festivals awards me too of course um The pay gap, the massive, massive pay gap in cinema, Mm -hmm. the lack of female directors, all of these different um, issues that really shape the films that we get to see.
1: Very nice. I'll have to pick that up. I'm in North America, so for me, I'll wait till November. Yeah, yeah, November,
2: I think. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure of the exact day, but it's in November. So, um, so yeah, I'm, 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 I'm intrigued to see what Americans think of it because obviously i'm based over here in the uk and trying to sort of write as a third party but hopefully hopefully it will ring true at least in in large part
0: it's it's been an interesting exploration for me over these last 40 50 episodes that we've done so far because i was never a, a film historian whereas i know cam has been reviewing films since the early noughties um and i've we've done things like uh mata Hari with greta mm-hmm. garbo and you think you know, that's a well-written female protagonist yeah and then we've had films, even in the noughties, where I'm just left scratching my head.
2: I think we're going to talk about one of those in a minute, yeah. Um. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that was my segue hey.
1: <laughs>
0: into Cam. What are we talking about
1: this week? Yes, we are meeting back up with Charlie's Angels for the sequel from 2003, Full Throttle.
2: Yeah. Woo! <laughs> 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 Woo!
1: um
0: okay now at this stage um what we'll do is i'm going to read out the synopsis from letterbox.com cool um just to sort of set it up for those who haven't seen the film although i would recommend maybe going back and watching it first because we're going to talk about spoilers the whole way through charlie's angels full throttle this summer the angels are back the ain't
1: <laughs> yeah this summer. It, it,
0: the, yeah that's why that You know, song. that one. <laughs> but that year, back then. Sure. Let- Letterboxd.com is a strange place. Uh, the angels are charged with finding a pair of missing rings that are encoded with the personal information of the members of the Witness Protection Program. As informants are killed, the ladies target a rogue agent who might be responsible. Dot, dot, dot. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> That's not too bad.
2: That's a bit of a spoiler.
0: Uh, yeah, we've had some pretty uh, lengthy ones uh, so far. I don't mind it being one paragraph. I appreciate that.
2: Oh, no, but but the, 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 there is a spoiler in there. I mean, I, hmm. are we spoiling things? Are we okay to spoil things?
1: Oh, yeah, go nuts. Okay, I, mean, yeah.
2: I mean, I think the statute of limitations has kind of passed on this one. But uh, but to say a rogue agent is responsible, I think, is a bit of a giveaway, isn't
1: it? <laughs> As opposed to the uh, one following the book, Yeah. <laughs> It's always those rogue agents. You've got to watch them. <laughs>
2: Darn you, rogue agent. Well,
0: I, I suppose the, the, the topic at this point is, does anyone have any memories of this film when it came out? Um, I was 16, so mm. it was definitely a film I saw for, for reasons.
2: <laughs> but why are you so sure? Hmm. Uh, <laughs> I, I definitely saw it. I definitely would have seen it. And I sat down to watch it the other night and had no memory of any events in the film at all. I, I vaguely, I, I'm, like, I am still sure I've seen it, but, like, I could not have told you anything about the plot. And and uh, I, I vaguely remember the John Cleese bit. I think that, that had an air of familiarity. And the thing with the puppy at the end, that had an hmm. air of familiarity and nothing else whatsoever.
1: What about you, Cam? I didn't see this in theaters. Um, I saw it on home video. I just had absolutely no interest in watching... The sequel I mean I was very middle of the road on the first one and so the temptation was not there to see the second so um my, like Helen my only memories of this were they were very vague like for me what I remembered was Demi more as the villain mm. um and that was about it really a lot of the moments actually that I connected with this movie were actually in the first one when we re- when we revisited that movie I was like oh okay that's in the first one but this this movie um yeah, I, at the time I remember not liking it at all. My, um, you know, opinions have maybe changed a little bit, but at the time I was just like, you know, garbage. Next movie. Like I couldn't have cared less.
2: <laughs> I mean, that, that's not unfair. I, don't think. <laughs> I just, yeah. I just think, look, I, I think this has a very bad case of sequelitis, and mm-hmm. trying to be bigger and and uh, louder than the first, while also replicating all the beats that people loved from the first.
0: Yeah. What I found amazing about revisiting it for this, so I won't get into my thoughts so much on the film, but again, when me and Cam covered the first one a few weeks ago, um, I remembered bits of the film. I didn't necessarily remember the plot, but I remembered segments, you know, the alleyway fight, things like that. None of this came back to my memory. Hmm. I, I don't <laughs> know what that means for the film, but I, I don't even remember Demi Moore. I don't remember Shia LaBeouf, <laughs> of all people.
2: No, I, that came as a surprise.
0: <laughs> which I want to get into a uh, good old mutt good old mutt yeah um okay so it sounds like we all sort of forgot about this film um now cam I'd like to hear about how we got from uh, 1 to 2 so could you assist me please <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes um apparently this movie had fairly informal origins uh the first one was of course a big hit um, But it was very much just kind of like the group being like, hey, do you want to make another sequel? Yeah, that sounds kind of fun. But Drew Barrymore said um, one of the the goals was, we also made a pact. We wouldn't do it if it meant repeating ourselves. Now, the question was how to balance that responsibility and still have a lot of fun. So we'll talk about whether they actually achieved that. Um, From everything I've heard, the production was actually a lot of fun for the actors. They had a great time. So (laughs) good for them. Um, (laughs) But they brought in returning writer John August. Um, so he has the story credit on this as well as he kicked off the screenplay. And um, at a certain point, they brought in two more writers, Cormac and Marion Wiberly, who worked on I Spy and The Sixth Day, um, two credits that wouldn't lend themselves to a lot of promise, but they did go on and do the National Treasure films, so they have that in their back pocket later. But um, I'm going to go a little vague, I think, on the actual writing process because, Scott, you and I actually talked to John August, correct? Uh, we did indeed we've
0: already uh, spoken to him at this point so we have a an interview coming out with him a little later this week i believe on the friday so uh, stay tuned for that as well
1: yes you'll want to listen to that he's very candid about the process of writing both charlie's angels one and two and sort of the hurdles they had to go through and uh there's definitely some interesting points brought up that uh i wouldn't be able to cover in our research so uh definitely check that out um so, nonetheless, they brought McGee back. He had, you know, in the interim from doing the first Charlie's Angels, just really worked on the Fastlane TV show. He directed the pilot, and I believe was a producer on that show. Does anyone remember Fastlane?
2: I what now? <laughs> Wasn't that the?
1: No, I'm thinking of the Fast Show, not yeah, Fastlane. No. <laughs>
0: fast Fast Show is a good show.
1: Fast is a good show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
2: Fastlane.
0: No. no, no idea, Cam no
1: yeah it was like this very flashy um nighttime action show it looked like a McGee film like it had a lot of the style of the first charlie's angels um i think tiffany Thiessen joined the show um the father from twilight um i can't remember his name the The vampire oh, father
2: yeah. yep him him yep hang on yeah no i don't remember his name yeah so, yeah yeah oh no it nearly came to me there and then it went again <laughs> It's gonna look about halfway through this. I'm gonna shout out the name of the vampire father in <laughs> Twilight. Okay. Sure,
1: go for it. <laughs> I mean, you can't remember the name. I can't remember the name, and no one remembers Fastlane. His name so... was
2: Car- his name was Carlisle Cullen, right? Carlisle Cullen. I've got that.
1: Something. Yeah. Wasn't his name Peter something?
2: Yeah, I want to say Peter as well. Okay, so it's definitely Peter then.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> Fastlane had its little era, but ultimately McGee was free to come back for the sequel. Bill Murray was, of course, out. There had been issues in the past with Bill Murray not getting along with McGee, And also, um, apparently, a bit of a squabble between Bill Murray and Lucy Liu. So he was out. They brought in Bernie Mac. As for the concept of the villain, Madison Lee, as played by Demi Moore, that wasn't part of the original plan. But at a certain point, Demi Moore, they reached out and she was very interested. She hadn't worked really in five years since doing G.I. Jane and Deconstructing Harry. Uh, Drew Barrymore said she really fought hard for her, and they basically wrote the character specifically for her to appear in this movie. The idea of Madison Lee, or at least a rogue angel, was actually a concept they sort of had floated for, you know, hey, if we do a part three, maybe that'll work then. Um, but it ultimately got pushed into a part two. A um, couple other notes. Um Bruce Willis, who appears in this movie in a cameo, agreed to do the movie only if the women did a PSA on child adoption. He was a very big advocate for that at the time. Hmm. Um, and also the use of the Bon Jovi song in the film. Um, bon Jovi's very expensive and apparently Drew Barrymore made a personal plea to Bon Jovi that he agreed to give them the song. And I think cinema was changed forever due wow. to
2: that. That's amazing. <laughs> Faccinelli. Peter Faccinelli.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Yes.
2: Anyway, that was going to annoy me.
1: (laughs) So this movie had a budget of $120 million. Domestically, it did 101, international, 158, for a worldwide total of 259. So not great. Not great when the movie's that expensive. And in comparison, the first film did 264, so this movie made $5 million less.
0: See, that's strange. I would have thought, based on the goodwill of the first one and the reception it got, Uh, You know, maybe not so great with the critics, but uh, I I think people at the cinema seem to enjoy it.
2: Yeah, but it doesn't always translate into, you know, sequels doing well. I think people overestimate how many, how reliably sequels build on an original film's success. Because really quite often they just about do the same kind of numbers um, or come close, but they don't necessarily go, you know, double or triple. So I'm not... I'm not stunned by that, especially given how you know weak the reviews for this would have been, if I remember correctly.
0: Oh, I, I've got the uh, I've got the Empire review queued up. Don't worry. <laughs>
1: oh, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the sequel. If the first one's a hit, you're guaranteed an opening weekend. But beyond yes. that, it beyond really that, depends yeah. how good the movie is.
2: Absolutely agree with that. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: That doesn't explain Star Trek Into Darkness. That doesn't <laughs> explain it. <laughs>
2: Oh, I'm still that upset about that one. film is unforgivable. I'm still upset about that one.
1: How did it make money, people? <laughs> let it go, Scott. Just let it oh, go. Never! <laughs> you, you need to. <laughs> Never! So the top three worldwide for this year, number one was Lord of the Rings Return of the King, number two was Finding Nemo, and number three was The Matrix Reloaded. Ah, oh, what a time when The Matrix Reloaded was something people were excited about.
2: <laughs> oh boy, do you remember... When we had hope oh. for the Matrix Revolutions,
1: I remember going to the midnight showing and being so excited and just walking out, going, "Ha!"
0: Huh. <laughs> wow. That was exactly in my golf phase in two in two thousand three. That was <laughs> full on. I loved the Matrix. I was so excited for that film, and I, I'm actually a Reloaded in Revolutions defender. So, oh,
2: oh, you're yeah. the guy.
0: I'm the one guy. <laughs> yeah, I have the fan group. I have the Facebook group. It's just me. Wow.
2: <laughs> We all have something. I'm the AI defender.
1: Oh, okay. That's a good movie. That's very I, uh, underrated, right?
2: Yeah, very yeah. underrated. Anyway,
1: at the at the very least, it's a very strange Spielberg movie, which makes exactly. it interesting. Exactly. Yeah. So Charlie's Angels full throttle landed at number twelve for the year, right between Something's Got to Give and The Village. Oof. Two very interesting movies to be sandwiched by. <laughs> and as for spy films this year, number twenty three, we had Spy Kids three D. Game over. Number 36, Johnny English. Number 55, The Recruit, the Colin Farrell star vehicle with Al Pacino. Number 84, we had Agent Cody Banks. Yes. And at number 125, The In-Laws remake with Michael Douglas and Albert Brooks. So uh, mixed bag, mixed bag 2003.
2: (laughs) Maybe not the strongest year for spy movies ever.
1: Uh, you know, it's, we could look at maybe 1964 with Goldfinger, but I think this one may have it beat with, you know, Spy Kids 3D. Sure, sure, sure. Cody Banks and Charlie's Angels 2 is all you need for a successful Mm -hmm. spy year, i say. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and so uh, a couple other notes just to close us out. This was the final film for John Forsyth, who voiced Charlie in the film. He passed away shortly after. Um, they tried to get the Charlie's Angels brand going a few years later. In 2011, they launched a TV show starring Minka Kelly, Rachel Taylor, and Annie It? Mm-hmm. And it only ran for eight episodes. So the world was not with Charlie's Angels even in 2011 after this movie.
2: <laughs> or for the remake more recently.
1: Hmm. Yeah, very true. Yeah, we're going to cover the remake down the
0: road mm. um and i do want to get to your thoughts on that too before we you leave us towards the end of the episode helen but i, I would love to have seen what happens to this franchise with the original angels yeah mm. this, this this power trio of you know barrymore lou and diaz i just think they're just they're just terrific
2: well i mean they're even they're not the original angels but but yes course, i i 100 agree i think they're they're really really fun together i mean um cameron diaz hasn't done anything since what 2014 yeah. um so i I kind of want her back on screen she's such a good presence with the right material which i'm not saying she necessarily has here but she is hmm. so likable so winning and really underrated i think as an actress i think she's got some real skills so it would be it'd be good to see her getting back to work if uh if there's something out there that's that's good enough for her
1: hmm. so i had a final note on this roger ebert famously hated hated the first charlie's angels he gave it like half a star he was so angry And I just, I normally don't shout out reviews in the behind the scenes, but this one was so memorable that I just had to uh, take a clip from it because he basically turned his review for Full Throttle into an apology, basically (laughs) saying he doesn't know why he was so angry the first time. Um, It's Maybe he just was pissed off because there was better movies at the time he wanted people to see. So he gave this one two and a half stars, but he closes it out with a line that is amazing. He says... So if you want to see a movie where big stars trade witty one-liners with with one another in the midst of high-tech chase scenes and all sorts of explosive special effects, the movie for you is Hollywood Homicide. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it still sounds like he's a little angry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Hollywood Homicide is an amazing alternate to Charlie's Angels Full Throttle because I don't think anyone liked um, Hollywood Homicide.
2: Yeah, it's. I, I think he's... Um... I think he's his heart's in the right place with the with the apology because I think the first one is a lot of fun, um, but but and and they clearly did have a good time on this and you can actually sense that at times, especially in the sort of little montages of all the cool stuff they do, you know, away from this mission. But at the same time, he, he's not wrong. It's it's not going to be the best, you know, star-studded spy movie that you could ever see.
1: I I think it might be better than Hollywood Homicide, though. Honestly, <laughs> uh,
2: maybe maybe yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, okay. We're
0: revisiting this film close to 20 years later. <laughs> Helen, you're our guest. You've sat down and watched this. You even, I think, texted me halfway through about it. But uh, what what do you think of Charlie's Angels Thor throttle now?
2: Do you, do you know I think it's a really interesting historical document of how far we've come in terms of what constitutes maybe girl power on screen or, or certainly what we're looking for in female-led action movies because I think it shows that we've come quite a long way. It's almost quite uh, comforting or encouraging in that respect, because, you know, sometimes I I and others complain about the kind of female-led action movies that we see. You know, even the the trailer as we record this came out yesterday for a Gunpowder Milkshake, which looks like enormous fun, but, like, I saw a, a couple of people on Twitter complaining that, you know, oh, look, it's another action movie where a woman is driven by concern for her child, you know, and yeah, you know, can we can we maybe think a bit harder, guys? You know, can we think about this a bit more? So, there's still a long way to go in terms of representation for women on screen, representation for women in action movies, and and I think this shows how far we've come because, like, these are superheroes in all but name. The ne- the laws of physics absolutely hmm. do not apply to anything that happens in this film. I mean, not just because uh, Demi Moore does a uh, superhero landing in stilettos but also (laughs) that you know that that opening kind of racist looking maybe uh Mm. scene in mongolia where they're kind of escaping in the helicopter that's like that's not even close to possible like i i'm I'm okay with suspending the laws of physics and and suspending disbelief along with them but a lot of this movie i was just going oh come on seriously now you know it's kind of taking wire to a level that is just impossible so there's that there's also the fact that in this and in the first charlie's angels movie i think there's a real uh there's a real attempt to dress like i want to i want to kind of explain this but like every man's fantasy and and i'm not talking about actual fantasies but i'm talking about the kind of cartoonish kind of pin-up fantasies that you would see in a fairly cute magazine you know so they're you know in, in the first one they were dressing up in like race car uniforms and going up to the track and they were geisha girls and they were almost dominatrix at one point you know they've got all these kind of different looks they're they're nuns here they are strippers or burlesque dancers you know and they're they're dressed up as construction workers like it's just kind of going through this kind of cheesecake list of costumes for them to try on the, the, with all the subtlety and authenticity of the village people you know, um, so, so it's, and it's kind of, it's impossible to be offended by because it's just so cutesy and, and kind of innocent in a strange way, but it is also bizarre and weird. And, you know, if you think about this in your head and you put it next to like Charlize Theron in Atomic Blonde, you know, you just get the impression that these, this lot would, would actually crumble to dust in front of her rather than like take her on in a fight. Um, <laughs> So it's weird, it's just real, I just find it really, really strange to watch it. Like, you've got Natalie, uh, Cameron Diaz's character, being incredibly, incredibly uh, clumsy, like not able to open a door without falling over her own feet, and yet she's the world's most accomplished fighter, and you know, none of this makes sense. It's also, by the way, hella, hella, hella offensive to the Irish, I'd like to say. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Justin Thoreau's accent is a hate crime. Uh, I mean... <laughs> I, uh, the fiddle-dee-dee music when Bosley's trying to pass for an Irishman, uh, what? Um, I mean, I guess at least they're using axes and machetes, which isn't a stereotype and uh, I, maybe is better than using than using hurley sticks and shillelaghs, but good lord. Uh, I, I, at that point, my notes do kind of, uh, you know, descend into just shouting um, in, in <laughs> all caps. It's just very weird. Anyway, I didn't... Like, I I was just kind of boggling at it most of the time because I didn't understand why things were happening the way they were. Um, And I'm slightly worried that you've only asked me on the show to make Helen's ass jokes.
1: (laughs) Oh, that didn't even occur to me when I watched the movie, actually.
0: (laughs) That's all my material for the next hour. That's all I've got.
2: (laughs) Yay? (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Yeah. But I had also forgotten how many celebrity cameos there are in this. You know, mm. apart from Shia LaBeouf and, and Bruce Willis, I mean, Carrie Fisher as a Mother Superior. Come on, Souls. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, she was a nun also in *Jay and Silent, Bob's Jay Silent Back, Bob*. Jay so and Silent Bob, yeah, yeah, she was in her nun face.
2: <laughs> <laughs> her nun face. Ah, oh, we've all had one of those, haven't we? Yeah. Mm,
0: um, so true. And you can't forget we have uh, Joey Triviani in this as well. I
2: mean, absolutely. I mean, sorry,
0: sorry, sorry, Matt sorry, Matt LeBlanc. Matt LeBlanc.
2: Yeah, sure. One of those two. I'm not. I'm not quite sure which is which. Um, yeah, and I mean, really good cast, all around. I mean, I think Luke Wilson is the best there is at playing an impressed and supportive boyfriend for overachieving <laughs> women. I think he's great at it. Uh, Crispin Glover, I thought, was a standout in the first film, and I was kind of glad to see him back. I'm not sure why we needed redemption for him, but apparently we did. Um, if people have heard me on the Empire podcast, you will know that redemption for villains is one of my least favourite things ever. Just let bad guys be bad guys, but I guess he needed some kind of sympathetic backstory. Yeah. Um, John Cleese, I, I just... Oh, it was one of those misunderstandings that I really wanted to be cleared up, but at least it was well-written, I thought. Uh, yeah. Melissa McCarthy turned up at the end of the credits. Did you notice that?
0: That was weird. Yes. That oh, was yeah.
2: weird. So, yep. you know, anyway, great cast. Great to see uh, Demi Moore. I, rem- I do remember her at the time looking incredible uh, with her surfboard. Like, fair play to her. She's amazing in it. But I just wanted more for her to do, maybe, and... You know, again, if you're, if she's going to be the bad guy, let her be the bad guy. Don't have, like, six other bad guys around her um, mm-hmm. cluttering up the film. Also, very, very on-the-nose music and incredibly early noughties music. <laughs> Firestarter, you know, I think twice for Firestarter. Block, Rock and Beats. It, this could not date it more. It's incredible.
1: I, th- I think the Firestarter, though, uh, is for a reference to the Drew Barrymore film. I think it was an in-joke. <laughs>
2: Oh, I, I hope so. Why they that would really, be good. Yeah, I think that's why they
1: <laughs> hammered home that one.
2: I mean, they really did, but, you know, it's not Ragnarok, yeah. and it's not Immigrant Song, so I'm not sure about using it mm. twice. But
1: well, What about you, Cam? What about you? Um, So, uh, when I revisited the first film, it wasn't a movie I looked forward to revisiting. <laughs> and yet, when it was over, I said, okay, this movie was actually... Really, you know, quickly paced, it had momentum, Hmm. and it was a pretty much straight line. It has its little diversions here and there, but it felt like we were on a pretty you know fast track setting up this story, paying it off. You know, it's a 90-minute action movie. Watching this movie, you see a lot of the problems you get with sequels where Mm -hmm. they've been successful. It reminded me, you know, Iron Man 2, for example, or the Pirates of the Caribbean sequels, where it's like, okay, people love this about this movie, now do it. 10 times more. So it's like we had our little diversions in the first one, you know, cutaways to flashbacks and, you know, pop culture references. Let's do that twice as much. Action scenes. This was the rare case where, like Men in Black 2, for some reason, more money plus more time equals worse effects, Mm -hmm. where the effect scenes get bigger and more bombastic, but look so much worse viewed almost 20 years later. Um, It's... uh, A movie that just I found very frustrating in that I don't expect to sit there and be engrossed in the plot line of Charlie's Angels films, uh, at least the first two. They very much set up from the beginning. This is a kitchen sink franchise. It's all about superficial flash and appeal. Um, You're kind of along for the ride, and that's fine. But this movie is shooting in so many directions at once that Mm -hmm. I just found it very frustrating to keep track of because... My big memory, as I said, was Demi Moore being the villain, and I agree. She's fantastic when she shows up. She knows exactly what movie she's in and is playing it to the hilt, and she's in the movie for, like, I don't know, six minutes or something. It's very strange how they're just bouncing around, throwing in, there's, like, I think four villains total, Um, and there's, like, other subplots I want to talk about as we go forward in the conversation, just in terms of delving into the personal life of the angels, and the way the movie kind of tries to wedge those in there too with setups payoffs um but overall it just felt kind of underbaked and overstuffed where it's like there's so much that they wanted to do it was almost like the enthusiasm they had from the success of the first one just caused them to just let the floodgates open and just go insane and the results are pretty messy but what about you scott
0: I I wrote this down at the top of my notes on my second viewing. Yes, I had to watch this twice. <laughs> um, that's uh, that's four hours I'm not getting back. <laughs> Stupid, ludicrous, bloated, <laughs> but fun. Okay, all right. So, I, okay, I, I've said this to you, I think, off air cam. But this film suffers from, and I agree with you exactly what you said—the sort of Iron Man two syndrome. Although I called it Spider Man three. Syndrome mm-hmm. again. Too many villains, just confusing the plot and and just muddying everything. And um, another word I wrote down in my notes was Flanderization, where they took all the bits of of the some of the, they to some of the weird bits out of the first one and just made it bigger jokes about itself. Mm-hmm. Like it just it was so self referential. It was just I don't know. There was fun to it, and you could tell that the angels were having a good time. Yeah, like I I my leads were having a blast, and I liked that. But yeah. I, I couldn't get into the story. I, I wasn't really sure what the plot was. And I watched this twice. <laughs> I'm still kind of confused as to who Rodrigo Santoro was playing. Right. Uh, he just sort of died. Um, I don't know why Thin Man was back, because they they really pissed Crispin Glover up the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I felt like it was just a shame, because as Helen pointed out, all-star cast, all-stars, and yet we got delivered this muddy... You know, two-hour film that has some laughs in it, but is without soul. Whereas the first one, I think, at least had a a kind soul to it and a and a, a well-meaning.
1: Yeah, and I was also baffled for much of it about who Shyloboff was. I was sitting there going like, <laughs> who is this character? Why am I supposed to care about him? Why does the movie not seem to care about him?
2: <laughs> yeah. So he's he's his he saw his parents get killed by. Bad people and then testified against the bad people. So ended up in witness protection where he's able to go out dirt biking in a no holds <laughs> barred, kill you as soon as look at your dirt bike race. Um, and then nobody raises the alarm when he disappears from presumably the foster family where he's living and goes to, I guess that was meant to be South Central, also hella stereotyped, I thought, um, mm-hmm. to live with Bernie Max's mum and be adopted by her at the end. Sure, okay, cool. Um, yeah, it was It was that period, wasn't it, where Shia LaBeouf was everybody's sidekick? You know, Constantine, Will Smith and I, Robot, you name it, he was a sidekick. So uh, I, I guess maybe he had to do his time here as well. There was some kind of plea deal or something, I don't know but
1: it was also right after that even stevens show had come to an end that he'd worked on for a handful of years so they were like trying to figure out what his transition would be because i think he did disney's holes maybe this same year so it was like okay how do we take this young actor and transition him into you know more of a hollywood star and i guess this was one of the early steps i suppose
2: i guess yeah yeah because i think this would have come slightly before constantine and i robot um yeah, that that was weird. I mean, Rodrigo Santoro, I guess, was a bad guy. He did seem to be gunning for Shia LaBeouf during that race, uh, so I guess <laughs> I he <couldn't> was. Tell. <laughs> yeah, so I think he was a bad guy. Um, presumably driven to madness by the pressure of never eating a carb, and then, <laughs> but then I don't know where the who the thin man was meant to be working for. Was he meant to be a, being a goodie of some sort at that point? Was that some kind of redemption thing? How did he know? Why was he there? So many questions.
0: I understand bringing him back.
2: Yeah, he's a, he's a cool, yeah. interesting weirdo. It's
1: it's Chris Glover. You want him in your yeah. film if you can have him. Is there a connection, the fact that he was raised at this orphanage, which was actually shot at the Playboy Mansion, um, strangely <laughs> enough, um, but uh, <laughs> is the connection that because he was an orphan there who discovered his love of hair while having haircuts, um, that uh, he related to Shia LaBeouf because he was an orphan as well? Right. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I, I guess. guess. Yeah. Okay. But all right. I'll this go is, with that. But this
1: is a
0: writing thing. They they wrote this. It's not necessarily a good idea. You could write them. You could connect people in a script all you want, but it doesn't mean it's a good idea.
2: Yeah. Uh, I, sure, they went
0: to the same orphanage, but uh, there's much more interesting things you could have done with Christmas Glover instead of have a kid in a wire set screaming at uh, Carrie Fisher
2: i mean when you put it that way it sounds kind of fun but yeah
0: (laughs) well hmm. it could have been a better film maybe i don't know but um uh, yeah uh, i suppose overall thoughts for me is there's bits i enjoyed but it's it's a a shadow of its uh predecessor
1: Hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: a very long shadow
1: yeah it's interesting there was all these pieces um about the legacy of the first film um that came out you know a handful of years ago celebrating the 20th Uh, i guess it was last year actually and um there was a lot of talk about how the movie had its problematic elements but was actually um a bit of a trailblazer for a female-fronted blockbuster action franchise mm. and um that sort of thing it is interesting very little is talked about in regards to the sequel they tend to acknowledge the kind of i guess cultural importance of the first film but the sequel is very much kicked to the side
2: well yeah i just but i think this is exactly what you're talking about is it is because it suffers from such bad sequelitis and such you know, obvious attempts to recreate the bits that worked in the first one. I mean, genuinely, what what got me is is that opening scene where, once again, Cameron Diaz has to dance like an idiot around her house. Mm. Uh, but this time, the other two jump in as well. And then, once again, she goes out to a club with Luke Wilson and does a crazy dance routine, you know. And, and I'm just like, well, but we've seen that. Is there not another thing that you could do that would, you know... Hit as hard and be as fun and and as joyous, but also not feel like you're just giving us exactly the same thing again. Yeah, it's always. I mean, it's the problem with every sequel, and it is the thing that you always have to figure out a balance between giving people what they loved about the first one, but also doing something new, moving the story forward. And I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying I'd be great at it, but you know, you also have to do it. That's what you get paid the big bucks for. This is why I don't get paid nearly as much. Um, <laughs> so. So, yeah, I just think stuffing what a lot of sequels, especially around this time were doing, is exactly this. They were stuffing the cast with big star names that they could put in the trailer. You know, they were were adding in extra villains to, in theory, raise the stakes and allow for lots of different kinds of action scenes. But that doesn't actually solve your problem. You know, you actually need to have a story that has more heft and more emotional weight than the first one. Um, and that's what will make your sequel kind of come alive and sing. And, and that's why this one kind of doesn't really. But there is, like you say, there is there are fun elements here. There could hardly help but be fun elements with all of this cast. But, you know, there's not nearly enough to make up for the Irish jokes. And also, by the way, Drew Barrymore is wearing a UK flag T-shirt. She's wearing a freaking Union Jack T-shirt when they break in to go up against the Irish uh, gangsters, which is also offensive. Ugh!
0: Honestly. I, th- there goes one of my outro lines, unfortunately. I was going to oh, do a, I was going do an impression, but uh, that, that, there that goes. Um, I, I, I might ask you to do it, Helen. At least it would be authentic that way.
2: Uh, ish, ish.
0: Ish. Um, well, I think before I... I've got a, a, a thing to move us on to, but I do want to read out the Empire review okay. of Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. Now, this is by uh, William Thomas. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if he still works there, Empire, but... No, uh, I don't think so. Okay, so that's probably perfect to do it now, then. It's only three paragraphs, so it's nice and short. A sequel to a movie that few people liked that much in the first place. No good can come of it, you might think, and you'd be right. Like the original Charlie's Angels, Full Throttle is a movie that should be effortlessly entertaining, packed with gorgeous girls, guns, and great music. What could possibly go wrong? One word. Mukji. Hmm. It gets worse. Staggeringly awful director, incapable of maintaining a consistent tone from one scene to the next, the ex-music video hotshot seems to be laboring under the misapprehension that the first movie was a masterpiece. So here we get more of the same. Lame double entendres, camera work that would make Michael Bay have a headache, a willfully barodic narrative, and outrageous sexism in the guise of revolutionary feminism. <laughs> Fair point. Uh, there are some plus points. Uh, Lou and Diaz are always watchable. While some action sequences are so artfully knowing that you briefly suspect M. McG might be making the ultimate blockbuster satire, long story cut short, he isn't. <laughs> Citizen Kane for teenage boys. Still better than the original, though.
2: Wow. Better? Well, oh, wow. I, I, I would disagree with that. I think, look, I, I, I'm... I don't want to kind of bad my will but
0: oh no 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 it was more just a it was a long time no but i do want to
2: say i do want to say one thing which is i think there is a a general critical tendency uh and certainly there definitely was at that point 20 years ago but there there still is a little bit this critical tendency to see films that are aimed at or about women as being inherently suspect frivolous uh silly um and mm-hmm. and I think there's a little bit of that in some of the tone there with the greatest of respect to my former colleague. I, I just, I think that there's, you know, there is just a tendency to kind of, if you think it's for or about fe- uh, t- teenage girls in particular, there's a tendency to kind of sneer. And that's always been true that, you know, you go back to the Beatles and, and that, I think that's one of the reasons they, it took a while for the world's serious music press to kind of wake up to the fact that these guys mattered. It's because if teenage girls likes it, it must be suspicious. And I know he's saying it's teenage boys there, but I don't think it's quite that simple because God knows Empire likes a lot of films aimed at teenage boys. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I'm yeah, I would I would definitely disagree that this is worse than the first one or sorry, better than the better than the first one, because I think that is not the case.
1: Drew Barrymore actually talked about this in an interview I read where they asked her, you know, who is this movie aimed at? Because I remember when I was, I guess, late teens, when the first one came out, to me, I was like, well, this movie really isn't for me. Um, Whereas maybe you could argue it was. I don't really know. But Drew Barrymore said the intention was that this was a movie for couples, that it had Mm. eye candy for both sides. Um, It kind of had stuff that women would enjoy, but kind of the, as you know, you said, Helen, kind of the cheesecake sort of stuff for the male audience that was at least mm. the intention whether it actually delivered on that front is maybe up for debate but that was what drew barrymore wanted to do as a producer
2: well i mean yeah i think if you've got luke wilson and and rodrigo santoro in particular in your film you're immediately catering to you know a female or or man fancying let's say uh demographic you know um and, it, and obviously those three women are insanely gorgeous and and beautiful and absolutely would you know make most woman fancying demographics pretty happy so i think there's i think there's probably something to that but i think there is a there is a tendency to be suspicious of films with female leads that goes a little bit beyond that you know there's there's always been this tendency to think that male is a default setting almost and that white male actually white straight male you know you can go on adding mm. adding names um and that anybody else is a kind of special interest group and i think that there's a little bit of that here, Now, I would say that the girl power thing is actually much, much stronger in the Charlie's Angels kind of reboot that, that, that Elizabeth Banks made a couple of years ago, where they really hit you over the head with a whole girl power message the whole way through. And I feel like if I'd seen that at the age of like 10 or 11, you yeah. know, I think it would have been like one of my favorite films. Seeing it as a slightly perhaps too cynical, you know, adult, uh, I was a bit like, OK, I get it calm down with the girl power <laughs> just tell me the story but um but i think that's that's that is part of this and they would definitely see that as part of this film but it's it's much much more restrained here than in the what was that 2018 2019 film um, i want to say
0: 19 yeah 19 like yeah
2: so yeah so it's a, it's a part of this one but but not quite as and again i think that's where we've come as far as we have i think the the portrayal of quote-unquote feminism here compared to 2019 is is worlds apart. And just as it would be between this one and the original Charlie's Angels.
0: For sure. Well, let's, um, I think before we maybe take any more shots at the film, I think we should talk about some <laughs> of the things we actually enjoyed. All right. Um, so I'll start us off with, I really like the whole opening of the film, despite its lack of, you know, physics. hmm <laughs> the whole opening through from in the bar to the Rage Against the Machine soundtrack on top of a dam through to the Charlie introducing the angels again and the little the little action set pieces of them growing up again. I think that stuff's great. It sort of has a Bond opening feel to it.
2: Yeah, I mean, it reminded me more of uh, the opening of, or not the opening, but the the scene of in of raiders in Nepal. Yeah. I think it's very much drawing from that. Uh I, yeah, I, I liked the kind of the hyping them up stuff, you know, when uh, when you've got Robert Patrick going, oh, but there's 50 men out there and Lacey Liu going, I know it hardly seems fair, you know, um, when she's got her two friends up against them. I thought that was all really fun. Uh, I think they're I think the costuming this is going to sound like really faint praise, but I think the costuming is really, really fun throughout. And especially in all of these little cutaway montage bits, I think I thought those were really funny. Yeah. Um, I love this idea that they all have these incredibly insane backstories. Uh, I thought that was a that was a giggle throughout. Uh, I like a lot of the personal stuff. You know, I thought it was really nicely played. Like the, you know, the Cameron Diaz, uh, Luke Wilson stuff could not be lower stakes. But it's really cute um, because they're good together. So I, I just, but there was just every time I liked something, there'd be something along a minute later to, you know, take me out of it. Like an Irish accent. Oh, God. So
1: gross. (laughs) Yeah, I enjoyed how this movie, like the first one, does a lot of film homages Mm,
0: that are a lot of fun. The
1: Raiders stuff, uh, problematic as it may be, uh, was, was fun to just see that kind of setting where it felt like, yeah, it is that kind of that drinking contest from Raiders. Um, it was uh, surreal to see Sven Oli Thorsen um, pop up as a Mongolian guy with a machine gun. Uh, for those that don't know, Sven Oli Thorsen is one of Arnold Schwarzenegger's best friends who appears in a huge chunk of his movies. He was the um, security guard in Running Man, for example. Mm. So to see him there was kind of fun. Um, we had like nods to Flashdance. Um, the high school is the school from Greece. Uh, there's a lot of just like fun ideas being thrown around. I think, though, my favorite, honestly, was all of the Cape Fear stuff with Justin Theroux. Every time they <laughs> hit that Bernard Herrmann musical cue and recreated scenes from Cape Fear, I loved it. The love and hate tattoos on the knuckles. Yeah. If you're going to go with Cape Fear homages, the greatest of all time is still Sideshow Bob in The Simpsons. Oh, amazing. But this was a pretty good second place. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, th- yeah, that that was fun. I also thought I I and I was trying to figure out exactly but I thought some of the burlesque staging was was Bob Fosse. I think it's Sweet Charity mm. I'm thinking of, but I'm trying to get exactly the the reference. Um but I thought that was kind of stylishly done uh as far as, you know, burlesque numbers go in films like this where it's always going to feel a little bit exploitative, just a little bit. Um but it was but again, it was a it was a cool reference. Um and uh and look, they, they've they've clearly poured money into the action scenes. Some of them worked better than others. But also, I will also give it credit for actual shooting in L.A., which is not something that goes without saying, but they actually did, you know, shoot on locations that are cool, and that was kind of good to see. So, you know... Uh, from the the um, Griffith Observatory and and so on to the Chinese theater, you know, it's it's nice to see money being spent on actual locations and actual places, which by no means goes as goes without saying these days.
1: I admired the ambition of the action scenes, um, mm. but it felt like they weren't there technology wise. Like the compositing yeah. looked pretty dodgy. I could totally like appreciate that he wanted to set up this, you know, crazy helicopter crash at the start of the movie. I'm sure they had storyboards for how this would work and how all the characters would play off each other throughout the sequence. But just when it went through that CG, uh, you know, process, yeah. it just looked rough. And there was like another moment later in the movie where they all surfed down like a rope standing on boards, mm-hmm. and it looked Oh, that was brutal. bad. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it had that Men in Black 2 look, like the scene where Will Smith is riding the worm in the subway, where you're like, I get how this is a fun idea, but the fact that it looks so terrible removes the fun.
2: That early noughties, uh CG era is is incredibly difficult to watch now. Like it is harder to watch that than it is to watch a lot of the old kind of men in suits, you know, Godzilla movies. It, it's it's aged incredibly badly. And it's a real problem, actually, because there's some good movies in there that are kind of affected by it. It's, it's notable, I think, now when you see a movie from that era that still stands up pretty well, like The Lord of the Rings, with the exception of a couple of shots. There's a couple of mm-hmm. Legolas shots and there's a couple of cave troll moments that don't quite work. But generally speaking, it's pretty great. But that's because they, they mixed in a lot of, you know, bigotures and, and um, practical effects. And I think the people who went straight to full CG have really, really suffered for it over
1: time. And it's also like McGee was a director who he's so based in that music video world that it's all about kind of what's the latest we can do. And I just Mm. don't know that he had the discipline to think about that. It feels like he's a guy who was always on the cutting edge of style. When you go through his music video, you know, filmography, this guy always was kind of in the right place, right time, and was able to make music videos that had a real legacy and grabbed people at the time. He was... Mm really good as a music video director, but he feels like someone who didn't necessarily have the, um, he wasn't thinking, I don't think about the future so much. It was like, what's going to be big now? You know, a lot of people love this big CG action. It's working for a lot of people. The Star Wars prequels are making a lot of money in theaters. Um, Spider-Man has shown up in, and he's all CG. So why would this not work as well?
2: Mm. And yet, <laughs> yeah. I, I, look, I hey, I will not hear a word against McGee. Well, I will. I will hear quite a lot of words against McGee. But <laughs> soon after this, presumably with some of the money he was paid for this, he uh, he launched Supernatural. So mm, you know, he yeah. he he has redeemed himself with with that fifteen year series, which is one of my all time favorites. But uh, but yeah, he, I, I I I think you're right. I think he goes for the quick cool visual without always necessarily thinking about the story beats to back it up
1: and that's something he struggled with I think visually he can be quite strong I remember watching Mm -hmm. Terminator Salvation fairly recently and admiring a lot of the effects work a lot of the action choreography he had in that film it's just that the movie itself is uh well it has a lot of script problems but in terms of his visual style he's fairly malleable he doesn't Mm -hmm. just stick to the one thing. but it often feels like he's not a guy who really can recognize, uh, you know, story beats and what makes a script really work.
0: I suppose the only other thing I've got to say in terms of positives is is just the the, the leads, the angels. Anything mm-hmm. that they're mm-hmm. in is is generally great. I think they're all delivering great scenes. Again, I'm still a, a Drew Barrymore fan till the end of the earth. I think mm-hmm. Dylan is probably still my favorite of the angels, and that whole story about her. The whole the whole skit of her growing old as an angel, I still that 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 made me laugh.
2: (laughs) Yeah, with the with the Olsen twins as the new bright new ones coming in, that was adorable. And Lucy Liu, my God, I mean, still probably the most beautiful woman on earth. And uh, I don't think she's actually aged since then. I'd be fascinated to see the portrait in her attic. But uh, yeah, she I think she's phenomenal, and and I think you you know you need that kind of cool, composed energy. For the other two to kind of, you know, spark off as much as they do, I think I think the three of them work brilliantly together, um, and I really really like that about them. Yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're right. the The chemistry between them is is probably the film's greatest strength.
1: What I noticed with Lucy Liu's character was that it felt in many ways like a different character than the first movie, and I know that the first one they struggled a lot to cast that role. They wanted Angelina Jolie, and she wouldn't do it. They went to several people. So I wonder if Alex in the first film was written a little more generic, a little more, you know, not specified to an actor's strengths. And that when they came around to the second one, I found an interview with one of the producers where they kind of ran through the, the leads and said, you know, give us your thoughts basically briefly about each of the actresses. And um, when they got to Lucy Liu, he said, very funny. And I wondered if when they shot that first one, they realized like Lucy Lou's really good at comedy. Let's play that up because this time around, it felt like they were giving her far more funny things to do, yeah. Better lines, um, it like quips. Whereas the first movie, they play her much more serious.
2: I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I think she's, I think she's hilarious actually as an actress. Often, you know, she is. She is one of these people who is underrated for comedy. Again, because she seems so composed and so kind of capable, you know, you don't get her playing a lot of hot messes. You know, she mm-hmm. tends to be the person who kind of knows what she's doing. But I think that works here, and I think it works even when she's playing against that a little bit and undermining that a little bit, um, because you know you've you've set her up as being so super competent
0: already. Mm-hmm. Now I think I want to just maybe talk about some of my our criticisms that we haven't covered yet, and I have a bunch of individual questions that are maybe nitpicks. From you know why is Shia LaBeouf here? Uh, why were they naked in that statue?
2: Mm, good question because there's no right. need for them to be
0: no i wondered um, the same yeah i i wrote it down underlined it i couldn't figure out why but that i, I think that bit brings me to maybe one of my bigger downsides to this film and i can't wrap my head around it when we spoke about the first film i said i was really hesitant to just have me and cam talk about the film because we're two we're two males mm. and you know this is quite an over-sexualized film at times But I I found that the first one was not tame, but I think it was maybe reserved from what it could have done. And I think a lot of that was, I think, Drew Barrymore writing the ship and anything that they wanted to do that maybe was pushing the limits and uh, you know taking advantage of the actresses in the film. She kept on the straight and narrow. Whereas this film, the whole male gaze aspect of it just seems to have intensified. Yeah. To the point of where it's, outrageously shouting at me on the screen now i I understand why 2003 scott liked this film um Mm. that's fine and and there's a place for that but as a piece of work looking at it now in 2021 i think it i i don't understand how they've gone to the second film you've still got drew barrymore as a producer for the film how she's allowed them to go to the point of having them jump out of the statue naked for no reason whatsoever. Having Cameron Diaz do basically a strip tease on the screen that I don't think were necessarily necessary.
2: I think a lot of it is down to the nature of feminism. Um, and by that, I'm, I don't mean what feminism is or should be, but how feminism has been perceived over time. And I think at this point, we were still not, not really out of the LaDette era. So you had this, uh, I don't know, perception or this pressure or this uh, sense that you should be, that, that feminism meant being, you know, absolutely ready to go with with whatever, just down for whatever, cool with whatever, in charge of your sexuality, in charge of your appearance, and kind of embracing all of that side of things. And And I'm not saying any of that is necessarily anti or unfeminist but it was a very limited and very uh outwardly shaped like it was it was an image of feminism not necessarily shaped by women I think so it's it's limited in its scope and it's limited in its uh ambition maybe to to kind of change things so I yeah I I find it this is this is why I sort of said at the beginning I feel like it's a real kind of historical document of a moment in time that that just feels bizarre to look back on now but to to watch this now and you see this kind of thing which was described like in the empire review and others as as feminist as super like super duper feminist revolutionary feminism whatever um you know and and yet is incredibly sexist at the same time and I think it was there has been this struggle in terms of popular feminism, in terms of like, you know, feminism in the media, in the public eye to kind of figure out what that means with, without kind of, you know, getting into lies and propaganda about burning your bras, which is not something the feminists actually did. And, you know, I I do think, I think it was an, it was a particular era. And I think a lot of it was, I don't know how to put this bullshit, (laughs) Hmm. you know, wrong, Uh, Obviously, there's no wrong way to be a feminist, but this one kind of is. So yeah, I've really struggled with that kind of thing. I, I think there was a really good intention there. And I think someone like Drew Barrymore probably saw this as, look, let's pick our battles here. Here we have a film. That is led by three female stars that I'm, who I'm sure and I hope were paid well for their time and their services. Um, it is even a fi- female villain, which by no means goes without saying. Uh, you know these girls are not caddy; they're not at each other's throats. They're working together. They are an example of kind of sisterhood and and you know bonding and everything else. Um, they are not all white, uh, which was I think as I remember a bit of a battle on the first film. It was not necessarily something that went without saying. So that battle had been won. Uh, you know, there were things that I think she probably thought, well, we've done well to get X, Y, and Z. I think all of the women involved in this probably thought, well, we've done well to get X, Y, and Z. Um, and then, you know, went along with the rest, went along with the, well, of course, we want to look gorgeous. So yes, we're willing to wear these skimpy costumes. Um you know we're all in great shape because we've trained for the fight scenes, so of course we're willing to show that off whatever um and that's all fine, and again not it's not anti feminist to you know get your kid off if that's what you want to do, but you're right, there is a super amount of male gaze here and and the way that those films are 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 shot and framed is really really striking now, looking back and I think you know we're still seeing this today, and it's still something that we're still trying to figure out and you see it. You know, in the way that, you know, the uh, people talked about the way the Amazons are shot in uh, Justice League versus the way they're shot in Wonder Woman. Uh, so, that you know, the difference between having a male and a female director is still something that can really, really shape how women are seen on screen. Uh, I think if you look at the way that the women are framed in the 2019 Charlie's Angels, again, they're incredibly gorgeous. They're wearing skimpy or tight clothing for much of the film. But it is framed in a different way and it is shot in a different way because it's a woman behind the camera. So we're still trying to figure out what works. And I I think there is this real push and pull, especially in Hollywood, in commercial filmmaking, in trying to figure out what is going to get the male audience out there to see this film so we prove that this is a commercial enterprise, that having women on screen can make you a lot of money. And also... How do we do this while also being, you know, kind of respectful or whatever to women? You know, it's it's a real thing that has not been solved yet, I think, but it is, I hope, getting better. I don't know if any of that made sense. This is me trying to think it out.
1: No, it totally does. Yeah, it, it makes a movie like this, I think, really interesting in a lot of ways where... It's something that at the time, I'm sure a lot of the press, a lot of the interviews surrounding it were about the importance of it in the moment. Yeah. And it's like, is this a movie that has any rewatchability in decades to come? Like, could any girl, you know, or or boy who's, say, like 12, 13, 14 years old in the future, would they ever watch this movie? It feels like something that's like a relic in so many Mm. ways because of that.
2: I, yeah, I, I do think it is. And I think I think a lot of, you know, Gen Z or, you know, whatever the children now are called, I'm not quite sure. What comes after Gen Z? Alphas? I don't know. Um, I think they're going to look at this and be like, what the hell, guys? What are you talking about? And, and look, again, this is kind of the way we look back on some of those 80s TV shows and, and the original Charlie's Angels TV show. It's not one that's aged super brilliantly. So I think there's going to be an element of that with these films as well. Maybe maybe that's as it should be. Maybe these should be of their time and no more. Um, but it is kind of a shame because you would like to think it would be, you know, uh, something that you could re- revisit and, and go back to. I mean, arguably, it, that's true of the Bond movies as well. I, I find some of those borderline unwatchable. Uh, admittedly, I am a, something of a Bond sceptic. But, you know, some of those are so sexist or racist or just grotesque that it's very very hard to go back and watch them and you know maybe, maybe that's a, a, a cost of doing business I don't know
1: mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting literally at the time of recording this podcast the film that we're covering it, that this week is Goldfinger
1: mm. uh,
0: the, the Bond film and that has an awful scene in it that we spoke at length about in the episode where Bond forces himself on Pussy Galore yeah. And it but the gold finger is still held up as like the pinnacle. Mm. And that's and if you look at it from that angle, it really shouldn't be. How yeah. would you still think this is fine? I don't know. <laughs> I, I I don't know.
2: I, I mean, look, it is it is something that we struggle with, I think as as consumers of any kind of art. I think that this is something that we kind of have to keep in conversation about i'm not saying we necessarily have to throw all art out if it doesn't conform to our current kind of moral standards i don't i don't think that's the answer but you know like one of my all-time favorite films is is his girl friday which has some really troubling conversations about race in there uh, a couple of times but otherwise it's incredible and so i try to compartmentalize a little bit and i suppose i'm privileged to be able to do that and and you know it's not it's not something that i should do lightly but but i do it because i love so much of the rest of the film there are a lot of rom-coms which as people will point out incessantly now have really really problematic and borderline stalking behavior in them but i still find kind of romantic because i grew up on them and i have trouble getting past that so Look, I think I I don't think anybody's kind of pure in this respect, and I think it'd be incredibly boring to be entirely pure in this respect. So I think the thing to do is enjoy what we enjoy and, and, you know, connect with what we connect with, but just have these conversations about it afterwards and and kind of keep it in a context in our heads and and be aware of some of the shortcomings of, of some of the art that we otherwise love, because... I mean, pretty much anything you can pick holes in. There are almost no completely unproblematic faves, apart from maybe Tom Hanks. So you know, <laughs> what else? What yeah. else are you going to do? It, you you have to be a citizen of the world, I think, and you have to be a human in the world, and and expect a lack of perfection in in others and in yourself, and and make room for failures in your, others and in yourself, and then just try and do better. But uh, but yeah, I. I, I But this one is a little bit, I would say, on the side of sexism. So anyway, I'm saying all of this about let's give everybody a chance, but also let's acknowledge sexism where we see it. And this one has quite a bit.
1: Quite right. It does. And one aspect I wanted to kind of dive into as well was this movie makes a very um, um, intentional attempt to dive into the personal lives of each of the angels. And I really... (sighs) struggled with this. I like the idea that each of them is given something to do. So many times when you get a team movie, two of them get a lot to do and one of them is kind of ignored. Um, I think we talked, Scott, remind me uh, when we did the first one, like it felt like Lucy Liu got a little less to do than the other two. Am I correct? Yeah, that's right.
0: That's right. Except for the Barracuda scene, she was somewhat sidelined.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, here we get a lot to do with each of them. But I felt like because of that sequelitis, they felt compressed in a way I found frustrating I don't expect reality in the charlie's angels franchise they established (laughs) right from moment one that uh this is not a uh, realism based franchise but um i almost don't believe any of the characters as having human relationships that are in any way (laughs) realistic or believable so or authentic um and so i found a lot of what they were trying to do I could appreciate them trying it, you know, the whole yeah. Lucy Lou we're on a break kind of thing with Joey Turbiani. Um that's kind of fun. Uh, but then I found moments like of Drew Barrymore having this anxiety about the team breaking up. That works. Mm. But then her bailing on the team and heading to Mexico
2: yeah. happens
1: in like 3 minutes. And it's just stuff like that just kind of grated on me. Um the stuff with Drew, with uh, the stuff with um Cameron Diaz and the potential proposal, it's kind of fun, but it's it feels a little dragged out. Um, I just found that sort of stuff frustrating and having the, um, Drew Barrymore realization to go back, be a, uh, deus ex-jaclina was, um, <laughs> an interesting choice, but, um, again, it kind of underlines how superficial the whole thing is when a character who's not actually a character within the movie can just say, oh, hey, go back. And she's like, okay, cool.
2: Yeah. that That's one of those cases, isn't it? Where again, in, in a lot of these early noughties films based on old beloved TV shows, you get the character from the TV show turning up and doing a cameo just because, um, you know, think think of uh, starskin and Hutch and, and so on as well. But, you know, it's a cute moment, I guess, if you're a fan of the TV show. But honestly, is that your main demographic for these movies? Really? You know, but you're, yeah. you're absolutely right. It's a really good point. You know, on one hand, she's worried about breaking up the team. And on the other hand, that's exactly what she does. So what? <laughs> I guess you're getting in there first, getting your offense in before the defense, or something. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's I guess an attempt to show the character as having some sort of uh, almost like a well, we see throughout the movie she's drawn to guys who are really bad. Yeah. Justin Thoreau, um, a makeout scene with the Thin Man later on, um, and that it's someone who craves stability. So maybe in an, in a uh, situation where that's threatened, her uh, her um, go to is to bail on it because it's falling apart and I need to get out, I I guess. I'm trying to read psychologically into a character that there's not a lot on the page.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, she doesn't seem like someone who craves stability, given her love of crazy stuff. But okay, yeah, I guess. Uh, It's, yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird decision. I think, I think it happened more because we're like, oh, we need someone to have a personal crisis now rather than because it, it, Arises naturally from the script, and I think that again goes to sequelitis, because they've got so much going on at that point. They're like, we need some kind of personal crisis so we can pretend like we have real characters here who have real problems, but they kind of don't. So they kind of just crowbar it in anyway.
0: Well, this is another problem with the the Dylan character. She is still my favorite of the angels from both films, but that whole oh I like bad boys thing is not in the first film. No, it's been created for this to give her the connection with Justin Theroux, and mm. then the connection with Chris McGlover.
2: I mean, in the first film, you know, she liked uh, Sam Rockwell. I mean, that's understandable. That's completely fine. I think we're all maybe at, not there Tom with Green,
0: him. maybe not no, Tom. no,
2: not Tom Green, but he isn't meant to have been one of the bad boys, right? He's meant to have been the good guy that she went for at the end. So I, I don't know. I, I think you're right. I think they've kind of crowbarred that in uh, as a, as a bit of a retcon on her character and it, it doesn't work terribly well.
0: It it just that and this sort of leads me onto the question of and we sort of covered it, so maybe we won't dwell, but just spoiling Crispin Glover. I think mm. the Thin Man was one of the great inventions of the first one. I think he's he's meant to be a character you don't know anything about. He's that yeah. blank enemy. Um
2: He always reminds me of um Niddy in The Untouchables. Very, very similar. Yes. Mm. Um but yes, yeah, same air of menace. Uh, yeah, and 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 then they kind of spoil it. They always do this to villains. If a villain comes back in the sequel, it's always bad news for the mythos of that villain. Almost always. So
1: yeah, you can say the same about Jaws in Moonraker. Right. Like, everyone loves Jaws in the Spy Who Loved Me. When he shows up in Moonraker and they kind of turn him into the uh, bumbling, kind of adorable henchman, it's just not as much fun. And yeah, I mean, I can appreciate that with Creepy Thin Man. It's Crispin Glover. This guy's not going to show up and um, <laughs> play by necessarily the rules. He is giving a bizarre performance in the exactly. scene where like they kiss and then he starts like shrieking or whatever. It's, I mean, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Like it's the sort of thing that you go, well, that's why you hire Crispin Glover. But I think they probably could have found a more interesting way to use him throughout the film. And to me, honestly, this goes with Demi Moore as well. Like I said it up front, but I think Demi Moore is on fire here. Like it feels mm-hmm. like a perfect choice to cast as a villain in this movie. And she has a lot of little moments, you know, saying like, yahtzee and things like that, where I, you know, laughed. Or I could appreciate that she really was honed in on a kind of campy villain performance that had a level of danger to it. Yeah. And just why not exploit that more? That is like... The best thing you've got going for your
2: movie. 100%. You've got that scene where she's kind of just slinking around a hotel room, wearing half wearing a fur coat and then some incredible underwear underneath it for no reason. It doesn't link mm-hmm. to anything, doesn't have anything to do. She doesn't appear to be doing anything while she's there. It feels like there was a deleted scene or something where she was trying to intimidate someone or seduce somebody or both at the same time. And yet there's no, there's just this, these few kind of images there for for nothing and, and yeah, you're absolutely right. She would be great as the main villain here. And you could have a couple of sidekicks and you don't need Robert Patrick and Justin Thoreau and the Thin Man and sorted hangers on, including David O'Hare and people, you know, just calm it down, people. Just, just you know, let Demi be me, really.
1: Maybe then we could have worked in like a cameo from like a Jacqueline Smith who actually acknowledges... Knowing Madison from the past. Exactly, like, yeah. That would work plot-wise as opposed to something that's very awkward. Yeah. Like she trained her or something like that.
2: Exactly.
0: Mm-hmm. Passing the torch. But they did manage to work in the uh, really large finger attachment whilst tapping on a laptop, which I, I thought was a, a crazy addition there. I don't know why you needed that. Great. <laughs> yeah. um, any other issues anyone would like to talk about whilst we're here? Things to mention?
1: not an issue but we should comment on bernie Mac, who was replacing bill murray these are two wildly different you know comic sensibilities and i think we felt that like bill murray was kind of fun in the first one but also it felt like a lot of it was like bill murray just riff just come up with something and i'm just curious where you guys came down on bernie Mac in this film
2: i mean i didn't feel like it was his best performance he's he's Fun in the bits where he kind of goes off, but he doesn't really go off very often. He's often just stuck playing the bumbling sidekick, and, and it didn't feel like that was particularly his strength to me.
1: Mm-hmm. I,
0: I found the scene where he was reacting to the the screen to be maybe a little bit tasteless. Mm-hmm. That, that oh, yeah. Maybe just leaning on that stereotype. But yeah. um, I from what we got from, and I'm not going to spoil our chat with John August, but you know, and catch that on Friday, folks. But we did chat about his original script and and what was potentially changed. And I get the feeling that some of the Bernie Mac stuff was either written on the day, or was nothing to do with John August because I don't think that was in his original uh you know idea for the film.
1: Right. I yeah, mean, that's... I like that he was kind of the outsider, the one who's the newbie and doesn't really know how to fit in with the group. That felt like a fun little dynamic, but they would often kind of work in these little Bernie Mac kind of comedic asides, a little bit of that kind of stand-up type material, and eh, it just didn't really feel like it was that focused. I would have liked more for this character, but at the same time, uh, let's be honest, he's not the focus of the movie in any way, shape, yeah. or form.
2: Yeah, I think so.
0: I have one question before we potentially move on to wrapping up. Mm. and we, What was the point of Sheila LaBeouf? <laughs> I mean As an abstract question, what is the point of Shia LaBeouf
2: Uh I guess to have a I mean, did you did they need to rescue somebody in that action scene? Maybe you just need to give a face to the witnesses they're trying to protect, I guess? Is that is that reason enough?
1: I mean, Eric Bogosian was a face, but he was dead. So I guess you need a, a young face. Exactly.
2: A young face of protective custody. Put him on the posters for protective custody. Wait, no, that's a terrible idea.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, don't do that, guys. Don't do that.
2: Don't do that. Don't do that.
1: <laughs> I guess maybe his um, use in the movie... It, I can think of two things. One to give Bernie Mac someone to talk to because they put those two together for a good chunk of the movie so they could kind of riff off each other. Um, And then also it is some sort of motivation for that hallucinatory uh, motocross sequence that I had no idea what was happening throughout that sequence, Mm. but uh, yikes, like there's no geography. There's no sense of where anyone is in placement throughout this race. It's just like bikes jumping all over the place. Um, but I guess the point of Shia LaBeouf was to essentially have something that was an outcome to that whole sequence.
2: Yeah. I think, I think it must've been.
1: I was concerned they're
0: adding him in as like a, um, a boy wonder to have him in the third one. Cause he does sort of solve some um, clues.
2: So like a sort of, and also he was adopted, right? By the Bosley clan. Mm,
0: like a Robin. So
2: does that set him up as a kind of Bosley for the third film? Was that what they were planning? At this point. Again, just never get ahead of yourselves, guys. Make one film at a time. Make that one really good. Don't worry about a third installment. Oof.
0: Shia LaBosley. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't think we can save it. I don't think we can save his character. It's to strip him out of the film, along with half the bad guys, I think. Yeah. Um, which was my sort of last question, is how do you fix this film? And I think it's just that, stripping out half the bad guys.
2: Yeah, that that's a big, big help. I just... Like, just keep it simple, stupid. You know, that that old Hollywood uh, saying, K-I-S-S, keep it simple, stupid. Just calm it all down and spend more time making the jokes really funny. Um, I know that, you know, it must have been a lot of fun dancing around on set and coming up with new innuendos for Cameron Diaz to say, but how about, like, less of that and just make them funnier when you get there? Uh, You could easily lose half an hour from this film. You should lose half an hour from this film, and it would be better for it.
1: I mean, things like um, Richard Patrick, or sorry, um, he's from Filter, um, Robert Patrick, that's his, Richard yeah. Patrick's his brother, actually, for those that don't know, uh, uh, Robert Patrick's brother was uh, former Nine Inch Nail and founded the band Filter. But Robert Patrick, um, I don't understand this character because he's introduced as someone they're saving and he's, you know, a turncoat ultimately. And I mean, it's repeating the whole Sam Rockwell thing from the first movie Except, like, Robert Patrick's character has no personality whatsoever, so, like, why do we care? Again, toss that sort of stuff to the side. We don't need it. Why is the whole plot for these rings so complicated in a movie that doesn't have any interest in really complex plotting? Like, make it simple. Uh, As, you know, Helen said, it just doesn't make any sense to get this ridiculous with plot details. I I got a little lost as well when they had the rings in the warehouse and they had to separate the, like, I don't know, titanium from the aluminum or whatever it was like i'm like what am i watching like i'm as confused now as i was with shia labeouf
2: (laughs) that would yeah that whole scene made no sense also like bring a couple of spare rings that you can use to fake out the bad guys while you're there you've Mm. got all of these random pieces of metal for some reason use them come on that whole scene just annoyed me I i don't know if i've mentioned that or if it's come across at all but It's true.
0: (laughs) Now now you've compared um, Robert Patrick to Sam Rockwell's character, I just feel like we were robbed of uh, the T-1000 dancing with sunglasses on smoking a cigarette to 70s music.
2: Oh, my God. A bit of Marvin Mm. Gaye would have gone down a treat. I do quite like um, the pink song from this. I will date myself and say that I thought that was quite cool at the time. I do. I'm not saying... I don't know why, but I do... I'm sorry. It's not really held test the test of time,
0: like independent women. I'm not saying...
2: Say. Yeah, it's not on any of my playlists, but when it came on Liar. over the credits, I was a little bit like... No, it's not, honestly. A lot <laughs> of pink is, but not that one. Um, and uh, But I came on over the credits, and I was like, this is a bit of a bop. I'm here for it.
0: I, that Actually, you just reminded me of something. I, I was going to wrap us up, but I, I don't the understand why they... En- <laughs> I don't understand why they ended on a journey song with them washing a car. Um...
2: I think it's cuz if you've if you've got footage of those three women washing a car you use the footage of those three women washing a car if you're McGee. I think that's I think that's the entire thought process that went into that
1: Oh it may have been a deleted scene as well that they wanted to work into the credits yeah. that's possible I know there was deleted stuff um originally for example when Creepy Thin Man and Justin Thoreau, um, O'Grady's, uh, was his character's name? Uh, when him and o- O'Grady go off the side of the building, we see them laying on the ground. Originally, I guess in the uncut, maybe DVD version, they're still alive on the ground fighting. And there's a whole bit there where the sign falls on top of at least O'Grady. Mm. So I'm sure there was a lot of stuff cut that maybe they want to work into the credits. So that's the only excuse I got.
0: I suppose that explains the Melissa McCarthy cameo in the credits as well
2: i guess mm-hmm. so yeah
1: yeah probably uh i will say though that maybe they should have worked in some of that material into the movie and cut out the introduction of the matt leblanc character <laughs> which uh for those that don't remember is him doing a very stereotypical um chinese accent to lucy Liu, which was awkward
2: <laughs> super awkward
0: I just, I felt like, you said this last time, Cam, and I didn't really agree with you, but in this, this time round, I think he was just playing Joey Tribbiani. <laughs> uh.
2: No, but this is the star of Maximum Extreme. Totally different guy.
0: Did you see the poster of that in the in the film? Yep. That, uh-huh. Yeah, a little MI2 riff there. I thought that was quite nice. Um, <laughs> but, you're probably a bit too smart for this film. <laughs> well, I think before we get to a knock list, is there any final thoughts across the board, Helen? Anything to wrap us up with Charlie's Angels?
2: I've, I've, I've probably, I've probably said it enough, but just you know, on behalf of the nation of Ireland, I'm still waiting for an apology.
0: <laughs> M- <laughs> McGee, you've been
1: called out,
2: <laughs> but I still love you for Supernatural, so you've got that going for you.
1: Cam. Um... There was a couple little things I'll just note that I thought were kind of amusing. The idea of Creepy Thin Man being a children raised on roots and bugs um, definitely got a laugh out of me. Also, there's a shot on the beach where it shows someone picking up a boombox, and the focus is on the boombox. And um, I'm pretty sure McGee used that exact same shot in the Corn Got the Life video. So that jumped out to me for some reason.
0: Good knowledge. Yeah, that's some that's some yeah, core so... knowledge
1: right there. That's right. Um,
0: <laughs> the only the only two notes I had was one actually the beach thing. It really bugged me that everyone just left their surfboards at the beach. Mm. You know, oh, just yeah. plant it yeah, in the maybe, sand and maybe drove they were off rentals. Uh, yeah, but you'd hand it in and get your money back. Surely, are these people rich? Come on, people. Yes, <laughs> it's like ten bucks. So I need that. That's lunch. <laughs> and um, I and I. <clears throat> And the only other thing I noted down was the uh, the red house where they, they find the, the dead person. Right. Um, I can't remember how that was connected to the film. I just wrote down, I think that's what Cam's house looks like on the inside. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> you, you and your sacred candles.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Um Right. That brings us on to the knock list. Now, uh, Cam, as we have a guest this week, could you just run us through what the knock list is?
1: Yes, the knock list is the need-to-see official classics of the Spy Hearts podcast. Essentially, what we're looking to do is create the pantheon of great spy films, so every week we decide whether to induct or to deny a film entry into the knock list. And it's not a snobby list. We don't want it to only be, you know, North by Northwest and... uh I don't know, some other, you know, Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy, for example. Sure. Um, We want to work in movies that are entertainments. True Lies made the list, for example. Uh, Maybe another dated 90s movie, but James Cameron, really spectacular stuff going on there. I love that. Um, Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that's sort of the concept of the list. And so every week we decide to vote. And I think we'll lead into that now. Uh, Well, yeah, Helen,
0: you're our guest. You get the first vote. is Charlie's Angels full throttle making the knock list? Yes or no?
2: I would say no, regretfully no, it, it is not a, an essential spy movie for me, either for fun or for greatness.
0: I, I can't argue with that assessment. Uh, what about you, Cam?
1: Yeah, big no for me as well. Um, I expected to go into this movie and genuinely hate it, because my memories were not liking it at all, and I was like, boy, what does like almost 20 years add to that experience? But my takeaway this time was a little more muted, where I just... I spotted the things that kind of grated me about it. But overall, I just found it kind of a frustrating sequel. And I think there's a reason we just don't really talk about it anymore. So it's a no. And so that's a two no's. So I guess my vote is once
0: again useless. But um, <laughs> I suppose I will just go with no. I think it's a shame because the first film has a special place in my heart. Um, not that it made the knock list either, but... I just wanted a Charlie's Angels to get in there, and this one has missed the mark. Well, there you have it, folks. Charlie's Angels Thor Throttle received three nos, and as such, is not making the knock list. Helen, mm. thank you so much for taking the time to join us to talk about this uh, interesting film.
2: Interesting, yes. Honestly, it's been good to be reminded what it actually was, because so little of it lived in my memory. So it's been. Uh it's been an education
0: i think uh, i think we'll have to bring you back at some point for maybe a, a, a well a better film
2: i would be up for that that would be awesome <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs>
0: maybe we'll save like a lacare adaptation for you or uh... oh, for yeah there we go that 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 sounds like some somewhat excitement there so uh, we'll we'll take that but um for for everyone at home uh, where can they find more from you
2: well, I'm on the Empire podcast uh, most weeks, and we have our spoiler specials channel where we go into ridiculous depth on the bigger films and TV shows as well. And um, on Twitter, I'm Helen L. O'Hara. I'll be putting stuff up there fairly regularly. And then, of course, the book, as I say, is out in the UK now and will be out in the States anon, at, uh, November. Uh, and uh, and yeah, it's if you would like a read of it, if you'd like to learn more about the history of women in film, it is it is there it is there for you i'm not going to say it's good because i am still incredibly aware of every single typo but uh but other people seem to like it and i'm very very glad that they do
0: well hopefully by the time this episode comes out i will have received the book and read it so i'll be uh (laughs) i'll be be posting some bits about it as well on our our twitter page so and as for the spoiler specials i have a very fond memory of walking around the streets of aberdeen scotland listening to the four-hour christopher macquarie interview about oh my god yeah, yes. that was a, that was a lovely day i spent walking that around is, scotland he's,
2: he's yeah he's he's an incredible incredible sort of raconteur and, and just source of of information on on film and and you know thinker about what goes into film i think those are some of the best episodes and i take no credit for those because that's all on chris Macquarie and, and our own chris hewitt but um but yeah they're incre- it's just it's such a pleasure when we get to do things like that because we get to kind of see behind the curtain
1: yeah, the, that one in particular jumps out to me as well as the Marvel ones have been a blast. <laughs> I have lived or died for some of those Marvel ones, even on some of the Marvel movies where I'm like, eh, and then yeah. I tune into the spoiler special and it's so much fun to dive into. Even even some of the Marvel films that aren't great.
2: Marvel films that aren't great? Ah, the notion. Well, there's the odd one.
1: We talked about Iron Man 2 earlier in this show. We did, yeah.
2: Ant-Man and the Wasp. <laughs> Yeah, mm. Dark World. Oh,
0: I just I just realized a film I might have to ask you back for down the line because I remembered you're a big fan of a particular MCU hero.
2: <gasps> I am. Mm. This, the one with the spies in it? Mm. Yeah, let's do that. Mm. Let's do that. Maybe.
0: Maybe. Woo. Well, there you go. You can find Helena in all those places, she said. Look up the Empire podcast, and I'll be talking about the book uh, when this episode comes out to so check that out too. And we'll have some links in the uh, show notes as well to everything. Oh, fab. Um, Right, now before we talk about what we're doing next week, we we have a quick message from the Cage's Kiss podcast. Cam, roll the clip.
2: Greetings and salutations. This is Cage's Kiss, the ultimate Cage cast, where we discuss the movies and life of the national treasure, Nick Cage.
1: There are three of us here, and I can't help but notice that none of us are Nicolas Cage. Did nobody call him? What? A Cage cast with no Nick Cage?
2: No, instead of being Nicolas Cage, we're three Nicolas Cage experts, which is the next best thing.
1: I don't think we should admit to being experts. Too late. We are not experts at anything. We are not life coaches, and we are not in any way, shape, or form qualified to give you suggestions on life choices. But Nick Cage is, and he's made hundreds of life choices. Seriously, I cannot stress enough just how much you should not take our advice. But we're experts. No, seriously, we're not experts. Yes, but we will be reviewing his first acting gig as Nicholas Coppola, Best of Times, which features a young and very precious Crispin Glover. And his work in Fast Times at Ridgemont High.
2: And his work in My Nightmares.
1: We're experts.
0: Yep, that's Cage's Kiss. You can find it on all major podcast apps. I wonder what Charlie's Angels Full Throttle would have been like with Nicholas Cage. Uh, Maybe replacing Shia LaBeouf.
1: (laughs) That would have been gold, actually. That might have saved the entire movie. Well, we'll we'll never know. We'll never
0: know. Um, So, Cam, what are we talking about next week?
1: Well, Scott, we're going to take on the 1945 World War II espionage film... The House on 92nd Street, which is uh, really interesting film that launched a trend that continues on to this day. What was that trend? We're going to talk about it in the episode, but you know, for those of you out there who want to follow along, House on 92nd Street can be found on any of your rental services. It's on YouTube, it's on Google Play, um, Apple Movies, so it's not hard to find. I recommend you all check it out and then join us for that episode. There you go. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out
0: The House on 92nd Street and join us next week now unfortunately charlie's angels full throttle did not make the knock list but if you want to find out more about the knock list you can find that on letterbox.com slash spy hard we are of course a proud member of quite the thing media podcast network and you can find out more from them on quite the thing com. now don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and Instagram, and sometimes TikTok. But until next week, listeners, you were the cock, I was the beaver.